Hello and welcome to episode 7 of The Crashdown. My name is CJ, and today we are talking about the episode River Dog. It picks up right where we left off. Should I do a little previously on, just to remind you guys? Well, basically, our group of ragtag heroes, Liz, Max, Isabel, Michael, and Maria, have taken off on a road trip to Marathon, Texas. Michael finally found out what that key opened. They found that dome house, they've broken into it, and they found the secret chamber underneath the floorboards. It's just at that moment that Sheriff Valenti comes in. He had that report that Michael printed and headed straight to their location. He gets knocked out, though, by Miss Topolsky. And that's pretty much where we left off. Dot, dot, dot. To be continued right now. It picks up with Michael rummaging through the papers in the office. He knows that whoever's up there might be on them at any second, and he's going to find out whatever he can while he has the chance. The rest of our group quickly follows. They spread out to look for anything that might be a clue to these aliens past. Upstairs, Topolsky is looking around too. She quickly finds the hidden panel and starts picking the lock to the secret chamber. It's just at that moment that a rat crawls down Maria's arm and behind a tarp, Liz notices that there is an escape tunnel. So Max and Michael, thinking quickly, shove a bunch of papers into a box as they make their way outside. Isabel's about to follow until something catches her eye. She notices a broken pendant with a sort of spiral design on it, and she grabs it before she follows everyone outside. Topolsky is right on their heels, and she crawls out of the tunnel just in time to see our heroes peel off in their jeep and make an escape. And now we get everyone's favorite slash least favorite part of voiceover diary entry. It's now November 11th, and all logic is gone. Liz had plans for her night. She was going to finish her shift at the diner, have dinner with her parents, call Maria up for half an hour before tackling her geometry homework, and then maybe, if there was time, she was going to watch an Annie biography on Marie Curie. Instead, she took off in an open-air vehicle, which probably shouldn't be on the road anyway, and then broke an enter in this house and proceeded to steal a bunch of stuff from it, let alone all the bonding that she was doing with these aliens. Welcome to her world. All the while, they're driving back in the jeep, smiling away, Max, Isabel, and Liz, the wind in their hair. But it's Maria and Michael driving back in their Jetta that I really love here. Maria keeps throwing him the look. You know that look, that kind of flirty, I've never seen you that way before look. And Michael notices, but he's just confused. He's just like, what? And she just says it's surprising. She always just thought of him as this guy, you know, from the wrong side of the tracks that was going nowhere. But now there's this whole other side to him. A deeper side. Underneath his poorly bathed exterior is a deeply wounded and vulnerable guy. And I could not have said it better. Again, the writing 
nails that character. And Maria sees exactly what I see in Michael. A little boy who needs love. Michael, though, does not like this description. He is not deeply wounded. He is not vulnerable. Anything that might have happened between them was just on the road. And Maria says, of course, but wait, you think something happened between us? And he's just kind of infuriated, like, no matter what you say, you're not going to get the upper hand with Maria. As soon as the group gets home, though, Isabel heads straight for her photo albums. It might seem strange, but she's clearly looking for something as she flips through these pages. And she yanks a photo out and then goes right to Max's room and asks him about a trip that they took when they were younger to Florida and how one day when they were on the beach, they both just instinctively started drawing this shape. Neither of them said a word, neither of them knew what it was, but somehow they both knew what they were working on. And she gets him to draw it right then, even though he says he doesn't remember. But he does. He draws a spiral. The same spiral in the picture. The same spiral that's on the broken pendant that Isabel found at Atherton's house. Clearly, it's related somehow. Another clue, whether they knew it or not. They don't really have time to investigate, though, because their mother comes barging into the room. She says that they both look terrible. And if they're ever going to stay up that late studying, they should really be doing that at home. And how clueless is this mom? They're, her kids literally had left the state. She's like, I, I didn't hear you come in. Like, don't parents wait up for their kids? You just let your high school children stay out as late as they want? On a school night? before The night before a test? That does not make any sense to me. Anyway, it doesn't matter how tired everyone is from staying up all night. They have to go to school. And when they're there, Maria cannot stop talking about Michael. She talks about how deep he is and how there's this whole other side. And you know, he may not have great hair or a great personality, but there's something to him. Even though nothing physical or verbal happened between them, there was still something there, something nonverbal. As Maria's mother likes to say, he's a vibrator. When Liz kind of throws her this look, she means, no, he sends out these vibes. Everything they have is nonverbal. Liz totally doesn't get that, though. She's not really on a spiritual vibe kind of realm. She's dealing with more practical matters, like the fact that she has to face Kyle. Before she heads off down the hallway to meet him, though, Maria asks her if she's in for later that night, you know, to go over all the files. Apparently, Michael invited her to go over to Max's and help sort through them. So, of course, Liz is in. But I think she feels a little left out. She wasn't asked by Max, but Maria was asked by Michael. Anyway, no time to think about that. She's off to confront Kyle, and he is just as bitter as ever. He went there to try and help her, and he basically got sent away. And even when he greets her, he's like, Hey there, Miss Texas. Liz pulls him into the janitor's closet to talk to him in private, though. And once again, she has another of these private conversations that do not in any way need to be private. Kyle thinks it's kind of ironic, though. That's where they shared their first kiss at the end of last year. But in all honesty, I don't even think Liz remembers. Like, she does not seem to care about this guy at all. She tries to flirt with him a little bit, and he shoots her down. He can tell, like, that's not why you asked me here. 
So she just wants to see, oh, hey, are you okay? You know, after what happened, he got tossed across the room. Is he okay? Kyle says he is and basically goes to leave. But Liz blocks his path. She just wants to make sure that he's not going to say anything to anyone. And he's like, oh, oh, so you didn't just ask me in here to make sure I'm okay. Oh, sure, Liz. Don't worry. I won't say anything. Not until I have definitive proof to take him down. That's right. Kyle, just like his dad, is now on the case. He is going to make it his mission to bring this kid down. And if that means Liz is going down with him, then so be it. Bitter Kyle is back, baby. Topolsky isn't having any better of a morning, though. She is now getting reamed out by Agent Stevens. That is her boss. And he is yelling at her, basically that she's incompetent, that she couldn't get the job done, she couldn't find the journal, she couldn't catch the kids in action, and she clocked out a local sheriff. He is not impressed. And the whole time she's trying to play it cool, yes sir, no sir. And as she's standing there, she's doing this weird Tai Chi. Well, not that Tai Chi is weird. It's just weird that she's wearing a headset in a makeshift guidance counselor's office as an FBI agent talking to her superior officer about a mission that's failed. Like, what a weird time to choose to practice that. Are you trying to stay calm? Because now is not the time to be calm. Now is the time to cover your butt. Stevens gets so mad, though, and he's yelling at her, and the whole time he's been shoving his face with this bagel, and he almost chokes he's so mad. And he makes her repeat her assignment, which is to observe and to substantiate any theories that there is alien life. But she forgot the most important part. Covertly. That's right. And... Knocking out local law enforcement is not covert. She better get things right. Over at the UFO Center, Milton is giving a speech about alien metal. You know that metal that's malleable, yet springs back to its former shape, that takes on strange properties at different temperature. Well, he's in the middle of this slideshow presentation when a hand comes reaching out of the shadows. It's Sheriff Valenti, and he has a few questions. He wants to know about James Atherton. That's right, the writer of the book, the owner of the house, the reported alien hunter. He wants to know if he's still alive. But Milton doesn't have any answers. Apparently, the man disappeared in 1959. It was reported that he had direct contact right before he went missing. And this has really piqued Milton's curiosity. He wants to know what's going on. Valenti is saved from responding, though, because one of his slides catches on fire, and Milton is forced to run and go and put it out. <laughs> it seems like he does not have very much luck with these presentations. It seems like a very unprofessional business, actually. He's constantly just holding secret meetings in the middle. Maybe this is actually a bonus to his business, though. If a UFO researcher is being questioned by police, maybe that actually validates some of his claims. So maybe he holds these meetings to try and boost his reputation. Here I thought he was poorly running this business, but maybe he's actually a genius. Maybe not. Anyways, though, Valenti got enough information to go back to his office and look at that picture. 
Do you remember that picture from episode one? The one that Valenti showed Liz? The one of the dead body with the silver handprint on it? When he compares that body to the picture that Michael printed off, it's a match. That's right, Atherton is dead. This is not good news. Or is it? Who knows, it's confusing at any rate. After school, on the drive home, Michael has to find a way to casually bring up the fact that he invited Maria along to help sort through files. Max and Isabel are not really impressed until he kind of tries to bring it up like, oh, you know, there might be some other people who might want to help out. And they're like, who? And he's like, oh, you know, that Maria girl. Isabel calls him out. Oh, that Maria girl? And they all just chuckle at him. It's so cute. He's kind of already sort of invited her, though. So there's not really any turning back now. Except when they pull onto their street, there's a whole bunch of cop cars in front of the Evans' house. They've been robbed. They tell Michael to jump out before they pull up to the house, though, because it's too suspicious to all be seen together. Max's mom is home and obviously frantic. She's worried about her house, she's worried about her babies, and it's a totally traumatic and violating experience to come into your house and find everything destroyed, thrown around, all your prized possessions gone. Max and Isabel race to his room. They need to check. But oh no, the files have gone missing. And they just know the crooks weren't after the TV and the stereo. This is what they were after the whole time. And that's when Valenti shows up. He could only guess at how violated they feel, having someone come into their space and take something important to them. He asks Max what's missing, but Max says he doesn't think anything which seems strange because his room was destroyed far worse than any other room. And Isabel hasn't even gone to check hers yet. And that throws up red flags. What 16-year-old girl wouldn't run to her room to find out if her stuff was missing? The mom comes in just in time, though, and says, Why are you interrogating the victims? Oh, you know, any little piece of information might be important, though. He's just trying to do a thorough investigation. The deputy on duty, who we've met a couple of times, including the one Michael ran into when he was trying to sell candy to charity, he happens to be a Native American individual. And when Isabel is in her room, she's pacing back and forth and fidgeting with the pendant necklace. And he immediately recognizes the design and asks her where she got it. She lies and says the mall. He says he hasn't seen anything like that since he left the reservation. And there we go. That's the clue of this episode that they're going to follow. Apparently there's a reservation just outside of town. On his way to the crash down, Michael feels like he's being followed. He sees a guy at the end of an alley dressed in a suit who clearly pauses to look at him before he passes on. Then he's startled when Maria comes out into the alley. They all meet up at Liz's place and discuss being followed, the break-in, and then also the person in the suit that was following them on the road to Marathon, Texas. Max didn't share it at the time. They had enough to worry about, but now it's become a pattern. While they're all together, 
Michael notices Isabel's necklace too and says right away that he recognizes that. And Max says they all do. Isabel shares her information about the reservation, but they absolutely cannot go. If they're being followed, they can't afford to tip anyone else off. They've already lost all that information, all those files. Who knows what that said? Who knows what they contained? Valenti is still on the case. He is going around and gathering more information. And the next person on his list is Miss Topolsky. He shows up at her office and she asks him if he needs any assistance. But he just wanted to let her know that there was a break-in at Max and Isabel's house. They're kind of flirty with each other. And he asks if there's been trouble with any of the other students. But Miss Topolsky doesn't think any of her kids would be capable of doing something like this. And Valenti said, well, she would know. She likes to keep an eye on these kids. She likes to take her work home with her. She also likes to take it on the road. And that he woke up with one heck of a headache. And she just says he probably had his head in the wrong place. Oh, I must have. And I love that. I love that spy versus spy. Again, I know I say that a lot. But this banter back and forth of they clearly know I'm on to you. And she knows he's on to her. And she knows he's on to something else too. But you can't come out and say it. It's hard enough if you were dealing with something rational, but then take in extraterrestrial? You don't want to seem like a crazy person. You don't want to seem paranoid. And especially if you're dealing with government agencies, you don't want to get a black bag over your head and just disappear forever. So you've really got to watch what you say. After their little meeting, Liz comes to a decision. And she goes to Max's house and knocks on his window. And when he lets her inside, it's so sweet. She kind of falls and ends up falling into his arms, and it's a little romantic moment. But she came by to say that she's going to the reservation. And he can't let her, no. But she says, no, you saved my life. I owe you this at least. And he, again, no, no, Liz, you're not going. We're being watched. But she says if there's any chance that this could lead to information for you, she has to. And that she didn't come for his permission. She came for the pendant, and if he won't give it to her, she'll just draw it anyway. She's worried that these agents aren't just going to keep watching. If they came for the files, one day they could come for him. They don't have time to waste. They don't have time to play games. She's going, and she's going tonight. And when he doesn't say anything, she turns to leave, but of course he can't let her. He gives her the pendant and actually puts it on. They have to get really close, and they're face-to-face, -face and the light is kind of streaming through the window. She says she doesn't know what she could do if anything happens to Max. And Max warns her, if anything weird happens, just come back. Just forget it. So Liz, in the middle of the night, it seems, pulls up to a gift shop that still appears to be open. Like, it's pitch black outside, and she pulls up to this gift shop, apparently on the reservation, and walks over to a lady selling jewelry, who's definitely one of these women, like, turning it on, like, for tourists, because she's shilling out this jewelry, and Liz doesn't want that. She shows her the pendant. She's looking for something like this, and asks the woman, oh, do you know what it means? And the woman says, oh, yes, it means tree of knowledge. Well, actually, she doesn't know what it says. She comes clean and says, 
Wouldn't it be cool, though? Right then, a creepy man totally sidles up on them, like it's an older native gentleman with stark, long, white hair, and he kind of grabs her in the necklace and then just disappears into the night. And the lady selling jewelry is like, stay away from him. But Liz can't help it. He looked right at that pendant, right at that symbol. So she goes off into the darkened parking lot and calls out for him. Nothing. She's just about to give up and go back to her car when again he saddles up out of nowhere, grabs her arm, and we have these really tight shots of the two of them. They are obviously standing very close, but it gives this claustrophobic feel. And I like that. Of You get these wide establishing shots of the parking lot and then boom, right in on the two of them. He's right in her face. And he seems very threatening until he just says, please, and reaches for the necklace. She hands it to him and he kind of steps back into the shadows, looking around frantically. He wants to know where she got it. She says, we found it. I mean, I found it. How many people know? But Liz wants to know, what does this mean to you? And he tells her, this is dangerous. It brings death. And that's it. We're out of that scene. It cuts back to the Crashdown Cafe where Liz is working. A man named Eddie from the reservation comes by and decides to order the Redskins basket. And Liz says, oh, I'm sorry, I've been trying to get that off the menu for months. But this didn't sit well with me because, one, her dad owns the diner. So her dad made this really racist name? Or has it been in the family for generations longer than that? But even so, if you were like, dad, this is super racist, can we just change this name? Wouldn't you just change the name? Why would she have to hound her dad for months? And if she's holding staff meetings, why doesn't she just print up a new menu? It seems like they're doing pretty well. They're always packed. They're always busy. Or is it just so misrun that they don't have enough money to buy new menus? I don't know. I just thought that was really weird. Like, come on, you should be able to either get it off the menu or just ask your dad to. Anyway, he has a message. River Dog will see her. If she comes at 10 p.m. alone to the reservation, he'll answer her questions. To show he speaks the truth, he actually produces the bottom of the necklace. Remember how I said the pendant was broken? There's a slight sliver off the bottom of it. And River Dog had the peace. There's no way Max is letting her go alone, though. But they need to come up with a plan to throw these agents off their tail. So Michael and Isabel hop in the jeep and take off. Topolsky is following them like a total creeper, chasing after them down the street as they weave through these back roads until finally Isabel and Max, they turn down an alley and they pull into like a little side parking spot behind a fence and Topolsky blows past them. And Isabel is like, this is crazy. They should not have to live like this. Meanwhile, Max and Liz are waiting for their ride. They're out the back of the cafe and finally Maria pulls up with her trusty Jetta, apologizing her mom's acupuncturist appointment ran late, but that's okay. They're there now, and they take off in the Jetta. Topolsky is pissed. She kind of 
pulls over on the side of the road, and you can see she's getting ready to act when, whoop, whoop, ah, the sheriff pulls in behind her and blocks the car. Guess what? She just blew through three red lights, two stop signs, and was going 70 in a 30-mile-per-hour zone. She is a walking, talking, moving violation, according to Sheriff Valenti. And he says she has two options. He can either take her in and she can spend the night in lockup, or they can have a nice, friendly conversation. So, of course, she picks the latter, and they end up going to a bar, and she's drinking. He says that's odd because she seems like such a health nut. She's been going to the gym. She always orders in the health food aisle. She says, why, Sheriff, have you been following me? Oh, well, you know, when an FBI agent is working as a high school guidance counselor, you know, it sort of raises some red flags. And then she tries to go in for the kill. Oh, well, it must be hard trying to avenge your father. But he's like, you should be worrying about yourself. First of all, for letting them, in quotations, get away, whoever they may be. But second, for exposing herself to the local authority. All he has to do is call up her superiors and tell her that her cover's blown. He remembers her knocking him out. He's not stupid. He saw her. And all of a sudden, Topolsky shifts. Oh, I think I used the wrong tact here. And he's like, of course, everyone always thinks they use the wrong tack when they've blown their cover. He just wanted to give her a heads up. At this point, she'll try anything to get out of it. She offers to work together, that they probably each have information, and if they cooperate, they can progress their investigation. He just says he'll think about it. So who knows? Things are not looking good for our scummy, scummy guidance counselor. Her cover was blown with us, and now it's been blown with the sheriff. And I really don't know how long he'll keep a lid on that information. With Valenti keeping Topolsky distracted, Max and Liz are able to make their way to the reservation. When they get there, they find Eddie, who is very upset that Liz did not come alone. But when Max says that he knows that symbol, that it means something to him, Eddie agrees to take them to Riverdog. He warns them, though, there'll be a test. But if they can pass that test, Riverdog will answer all of their questions. And the two think it's worth it. They have to take the risk. They'll go with him. And so they do. In the middle of the night, they head off into the middle of nowhere, into the dark forest. After walking for what I can only assume is quite some time, Eddie says that basically they're there and abandons them in the woods. Max has a line where he's like, Frickin' Eddie! When Eddie just takes off. Because again, he's like Riverdog. He's there one second and he's like, Okay, he'll be here. And then you turn around and boom. He's gone. He's in the shadows. Liz, though, was prepared and had a flashlight. And they do find a cave nearby. As soon as they walk inside, though, the flashlight goes out, and then it sounds like Liz is abducted. She cries out. Max, worrying for her safety, makes his hands glow so that he can see. And that was it. He passed Riverdog's test. Riverdog knows that he's one of them. 
He opens up and says that he knew someone like them a long time ago. He was a fellow that stayed to himself, but that he started to befriend people and really only trusted him and Atherton. But he hasn't seen him in 40 years. The last time he saw him, he said the man thought that they were getting close. And when they ask what happened to Atherton, the man killed him in November 1959. Max tries to defend him, but what can you say? That many years later, you'd never be able to prove anything either way. Riverdog wants to show them one more thing, though. All along the walls are drawings and carvings, symbols that look very similar to that spiral. It all looks familiar to Max, but he can't quite put his finger on it. They know it must be some sort of language. But what does it say? Is it a message? A warning? A history? Back at the crashdown, Michael, Isabel, and Maria are getting really anxious. They say it's been hours. Maria and Michael are kind of bantering back and forth, flirting, but not. Michael's being sexist. Maria's accusing him of theft, and Isabel's just kind of like, ugh. But we do get an answer here to the issue of Tabasco sauce. In the very first pilot episode, I pointed out that it was at their booth and that Sheriff Valenti saw it in their car. Apparently, the aliens really like things that are very, very spicy and very, very sweet. And Maria kind of looks at Michael and says, I'll have to keep that in mind. And ooh, it's heating up. Yeah. Spicy and sweet. It's a good combination. But that is their little dietary quirk. That's why they're always loading hot sauce on everything. As the night goes on, though, typical Maria gets more and more worried and starts looking for busy work. She starts pouring sugar from one container to another until Michael can't stand it anymore and tells her to stop. Maria, though, just wants him to tell her it'll be okay. He doesn't get it, though, and is like, well, maybe it won't be. And she just, ugh, why can't you just be a guy for once? Forget it, she says. I guess I'm barking up the wrong tree. And she kind of stalks away across the kitchen and shakes her head. But then Michael comes up behind her, spins her around, and then kisses her. And it's a pretty passionate kiss for a first kiss. And when they break apart, they both look startled, and he just says, To calm you down. Thanks. And then they go their separate ways. And the camera work here, it actually pans out. So the camera is outside the diner. We're looking through the front window, across the diner floor, through the open kitchen window, and they were back in the kitchen, and you just see them silhouetted against the light and then go their separate ways. It's this sweet moment that neither of them wants to acknowledge, even though it's obvious the attraction between these two is electric. Liz and Max are like soulmates. Maria and Michael are like firecrackers. Explosive. Back in the caves, Riverdog's message is coming to an end. He tells Max that no one has ever passed these tests before. In all these years, there hasn't been anyone else. He tells them it's time for them to leave. There's nothing more he can say, and there's nothing more that they can learn. Although I think there's a lot more they can learn. If there's all these cave languages, 
copy it down and try and decipher it. I think there's tons more to learn here. But in Riverdog's opinion, no, there's no more to learn. It's time to leave. They ask if they can come back and he doesn't really answer. So Max takes his advice and starts heading out. But before Liz can leave, Riverdog stops her again and says, You're not one of them. Make sure he deserves your trust. And it's one of the last lines of the episode before Max says, let's go. And then the credits roll. And I think that's so powerful. Here's a man who let someone in. He got to know one of these people, one of these creatures. And although he's around, that person may have been a killer. They may be a killer still. Was it for self-defense? Was it a violent death? Who knows? Make sure he deserves your trust. That's going to linger with Liz, I think, a long time. Even though she loves Max, or really, really likes him, can she ever get over that logical part of her brain that tells her, watch out, you're not safe. This is not the smart decision, and it's not. It's the adventurous, it's the exciting decision. It's the decision that fulfills her heart. But remember what Grandma Claudia said. Sometimes your heart leads you to places where there are no happy endings. And that's really the end of our two-parter. I can't wait to see where it goes from here. We really progress this mystery of the key. We still don't know their origins, but we have some more clues. So I can't wait to see what pops up next. What's going to happen with Topolsky? Is she going to be kicked out? Is the sheriff going to play along with her? Are Maria and Michael going to be an item, or are they going to go back to bickering again? And what's Kyle got up his sleeve? He's got a vendetta. He's made it very clear he's out for Max. All these questions will be answered and many more next week on The Crashdown. So stay cool, and I'll talk to you then.